This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. My name is Lucas Rickard, and today I'm joined by Chris Duvall, the author of African Roots of Marijuana. Chris is a human environment geographer who studies how people interact with plants. Most of his work centers on Africa and Africans. His first book is called Cannabis, and it was published in February 2015. It's a world historical geography of the plant genus and part of the botanical series from Reaction Books. I don't want to make fun of it or anything, but he's noted that it's not the most catchy title in the world. His research on cannabis uncovers how visual cultures uh, provide rich information about the plant's past and present roles in societies around the world. And this aspect of his research, I'm very much interested in. So there are 100 illustrations in his book, Cannabis and then 40 wonderful illustrations in his new book, The African Roots of Marijuana. So this newest book of his is an expansive look at Africa's importance to the development of human knowledge about marijuana. It takes aim at conventional wisdom about one of the world's most ubiquitous plants and also sheds light on current and important discussions about marijuana. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today and discussing your book. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So let's get started with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess some of the uh, the steps that, that brought you towards writing this book? Sure. Um, so my background is in African studies um, and in geography. I look mostly at, at what's called historical biogeography. So looking at how plants and, and animals, but mostly plants for me, dispersed over time. Um, and cannabis you know i've studied a number of different plants and cannabis i came upon because i started looking at plants uh, in the african diaspora so looking at how people used plants uh, in in historic new world societies um and i came across one old reference uh about panama which talked about cannabis as angolan tobacco right and and that sort of plant naming is fairly common. And sometimes that gives us a fairly good understanding of where plants came from, right? Plants have dispersed around the world. 
And, you know, so I looked at this, there's a, been a literature since the 1990s really looking at how Africans helps uh, shape which plants cross the Atlantic and why. And I looked in that literature and there wasn't anything on cannabis. And so I, you know, I looked at the literature on cannabis and there are some serious histories about cannabis, but, but most of them and certainly the most easily available ones are just, you know, they're, they're, they're nonsense, right? There's, they're not very well researched. And, you know, when I looked at Africa in those books, there was either nothing at all or it was just a bunch of, of outdated stereotypes, right? And, you know, so I started looking at some original literature. You could get a lot of things, you know, through digital repositories on the internet. You know, you could go to the library and find old, old works. And there's really a, a pretty good published historical literature about cannabis in Africa that really hasn't been looked at um, academically. And so I started looking at this in about 2011, but, you know, cannabis is a really global plant. And so understanding anything in any particular region, you really have to look at stuff that's happening elsewhere. And so that's where my, my first book came from. You know, I, um, you know, found that I'd done enough research that I could, could publish a world history. And so I returned to Africa after that and, um, really have been working specifically on this book since about 2014. I love the uh, the title of the of part one of the book. It's pay attention to African cannabis. And I guess the, the you kind of describe why we should, but can you go into a bit more depth? Uh, what have what have scholars missed? Why why have they overlooked African cannabis? What what can scholars do better? Yeah. And so, I mean, the basic reason why pay attention to African cannabis, I mean, the, the most commonly, the most common use for cannabis now is as a smoke to drug. And if that's all a person knows about what you can do with cannabis, that's African knowledge, right? That knowledge that you can use this plant to, you know, get high to treat yourself if, if you use it medicinally and whatnot, that's, that's ultimately African knowledge. Um, water pipes, you know, the bong, all of those things, that's African knowledge as well. Those were invented in Africa. So just knowing that um, is important to understand that this plant has a history. Now, um, there's kind of two bodies of literature I just suggested about cannabis. One is the academic literature, which you know there's there's not a lot out there because people just haven't really studied it until you know the 1990s, really, is when we started to see a, a lot more works done in there. And there's a much, much, much bigger and much more read, widely read literature that's a popular literature, right? That's books like The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Um, you know, this was written in the mid 80s by a pro marijuana activist. Um, it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's in, I think, the 12th edition. There's editions in different languages around the world. And, and that's where most people learn about cannabis is through these popular works. But if you look at this from, you know, if you want to talk about academically in terms of discourse and like the archaeology of knowledge and, and things like that, most of the material in those popular books comes from pro-marijuana activists in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s. And most of the historical stuff in there is, is demonstrably false or misleading or incomplete or something like that. And as an academic, if you just picked up the book, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that there's some problems with this popular literature. But if you look at the scholarly literature, a lot of the scholarly literature and portrayals of cannabis are derived from that popular literature. And so you can read stories about, you know, 
Queen Victoria got high, right? Or George Washington, who's psychoactive cancer. So you can read that in, in journals like The Lancet, right? High in medical journals. You can look at, um, you know, scholarly histories of drugs in, in particularly with regard to Africa, there's just kind of this repetitive, like nonsense. And these stories just get repeated and repeated. And so they gain this appearance of, appearance of truth uh, through repetition. Um, and, you know, when they're taken up into scholarly lit literature, you know, I, I think of that as, uh, as knowledge laundering, you know, like money laundering, right? You take these things that are demonstrably false, you get them published in Lancet and they get this stamp of, of truth that is based on the standards that, that society, you know, has for you know, what is and isn't true. So that's one, you know, that's the the most direct aspect that I'm saying, you know, let's let's get beyond these, you know, politically motivated works and start looking at things particularly. Now the broader context is, you know, that African Africans, you know, for at least a century in scholarly literature, um, Africa has been kind of perceived as this cultural backwater in terms of global culture. But good ideas and technologies go into Africa. And nothing comes out, and that's that's false also. And that's been again addressed in in different types of literature since the 1990s, but uh, it hasn't appeared in drugs literature. And, and I really want to make that point that you know, whatever you think about using marijuana or a water pipe or whatever, that's African knowledge, and it affects a lot of people. and And we should understand what that means that that this knowledge traces to Africa. Did you mean to set out to to write in a corrective? Or is this just something that happened organically? Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really set out to write a corrective, but just simply looking at the literature on Africa, like you have to. I mean, there's so many things that are just, um, you know, flatly incorrect, and it's not to me just about well that fact is wrong or that fact is wrong. It's kind of the overarching, you know, conceptual framework, you know, of how we think about drugs and people, how we think about Africa. Um, there's there's a lot of racial language in literature about drugs. And you know, I in the book and, and I you know I can talk about it, you know, you can look up works in plant ecology, right? That, that have nothing really to do with humans. And it's explicitly racist language, explicitly talking about how race and drug use and race and environment are are associated. You can look at criminology literature, you can look at historical literature, and it all has this kind of under, underlying theme that, you know, race determines who uses drugs and why they use drugs. And most of that is, you know, derived from this kind of colonialist view of the world, for one thing, but it's also just kind of how people think have thought about drugs. And so, you know, people repeat these things up until the very present. And it's not because they're rampant racist or anything like that is because there's this kind of structural racism in terms of how people think about uh think about drugs i really you know my take is that we need to think about social uh social class much more strongly and really understand about you know what you know how that affects drugs and drug use and people in general so can you unpack some of this for me because uh i guess when i think of racism and drugs, you think of what automatically comes to mind for me is probably mandatory minimum sentences and the relationship between Asian Americans and Asian Canadians and and opium. But I, I think what you're suggesting it's it's a bit more embedded or 
or are sort of structurally related? Yeah. And so, I mean, um, again, I look at plants and plant history. And so if you look at, again, the, the botanical literature, um, there's this notion that, you know, some of these really important ecologic papers for understanding cannabis as a plant are framed in like in in racial ways. And so one paper that comes to mind is this this important paper on ultraviolet radiation and cannabinoid production. Uh, there's there appears to be a linkage there. And so there's this really robust ecological literature on it. But one of the most important works starts off with this, you know, what it says, this casual observation that um the parts of the world that produce the most, uh, the the strongest cannabis are those places where people have the darkest complexions, which is flatly false for one thing, but it, it produces this kind of really, you know, environmental determinist sort of idea about race and human difference and also environment and plant difference. Um, if you look at the current uh, taxonomical definition of what cannabis is as a taxonomic species, um, it's explicitly in racial terms. It talks about the southern intoxicant races of the plant. It talks about the northern races, and and it frames it as as you know these Eurocentric and and, and European sort of histories of people, you know, being more industrious and using cannabis as hemp and, you know, they're making ropes and conquering the world and stuff. And everywhere else, people are just, you know, not smart enough or whatever to, to use it as fiber, but instead they figured out how to smoke it. And that, you know, is, is again, it's kind of a portrayal of human difference. That's this, this really dated way of thinking of things, but it also completely neglects the plant, right? So in that telling the plant doesn't matter. It's just whether somebody is smart enough to use it as rope or, or smart enough to use it as, as drug. But what we know from the, you know, plant genetics in the last decade or, or 15 years or so is that there's two genetic groups of plants within cannabis that we can't see the difference. Right, we can't see whether it's going to make you high or not make you high, but we can see that genetically. And if you look at the occurrence and the dispersal of cannabis drug use, it corresponds not with with people. It corresponds with the movement of this particular genetic group of plants around the world. And, and broadly speaking, that's from South Asia to Africa to the Americas. And and that's really what we need to look at is both the plant. And why it was different people were using it because it didn't have anything to do with any quasi racial sort of markers, you know, language or heritage or anything like that. It really had to do with, you know, how people were living in their environment and what environments they were exposed to. That is incredibly interesting. Uh, and I guess it's a nice segue too into uh, some of the other aspects of the book where you talk about the ways in which it travels, uh, the plant and, and cannabis travels. So can you say a bit about how cannabis uh, arrived in Africa or how it came to Africa? Yeah. And so, I mean, the big, the global picture is that, that as far as we know, it evolutionary, you know, in terms of evolutionary history, the plant genus, you know, arose in Central Asia, right? And the psychoactive genetic group arose somewhere in kind of the Afghanistan, Pakistan you know, Tajikistan borderlands. Um, about three or four thousand years ago, it made it to lowland South uh, South Asia, so India, and people have used it there for, for 
you know, 4,000 years. And so there was a lot of knowledge of it in South Asia and it kind of dispersed across Southern Asia. And in Africa, we don't know exactly how it came to be there because there, we don't have a recorded history of it. Like with most plants, it just came to be there. But you know, based on different types of evidence, language, geography, uh, there's some fossil pollen records, as well as some, you know, technological um, linkages, um, you know, in terms of pipes and pipe technology, there's about five pathways that we can understand that, that, you know, how cannabis came to Africa. The first one is probably the most important. Um, somehow it came to Madagascar about, you know, may, uh, you know, about 2000 years ago, really significantly about 1500 years ago. We don't know exactly how, but it corresponds with settlement history of, of Madagascar. From there, it crossed to the mainland of Africa. So what's now Mozambique. And it, it dispersed from there, mostly to the the north. Um, uh, from that point, we can see this in terms of language geography. Uh, language geography. There's a couple of terms. Um, you know, I can say them: Sudoma and Jamala, that that are really widespread in Eastern Africa. The second is more prominent in kind of European understanding of, of cannabis. Um, that you know, sometime about a thousand years ago, maybe a little less than that, psychoactive cannabis came to North Africa, so like Egypt to Morocco, and that was through linkages in the Eastern Mediterranean region, right? La Levant, there was, you know, cannabis has been there for, you know, two to 3,000 years, and and there's a very long history there. And so people learned about it in both Africa. Um, the third is one that's also gotten a lot of attention. Um, it came to kind of the East African coastline. So from, you know, Sudan and the Red Sea down to Tanzania and the Swahili coast, there was trade linkages with, with India and Oman. And uh, it came there, whether it was a trade item or just came with people. Um, you know, that was again probably about a thousand years ago, maybe a little longer in that case. The fourth one is Europeans, right? Um, there, you know, cannabis has been grown uh, for, you know, primarily for rope, uh, you know, fiber production, I should say, in Europe for about, you know, 2000 years, uh, maybe a little longer. Um, from ancient Greece, uh, it, you know, cannabis was introduced to the northern Af African coastline, you know, particularly the Greek settlements up there. Much later, um, in the 1600s in, in South Africa and the 1800s in Morocco and, and French colonies in North Africa, um, they introduced uh, non-psychoactive cannabis as well, primarily for fiber production. Um, but in, in none of these cases, it really was successful at, and for various reasons that were both ecological and economic. And then the last case um, is uh, European sailors. Um, starting in the 1500s, European sailors used cannabis in South Asia. Um, and we have, you know, based on language geography and, and some historical documentation, they introduced it to port cities around the world, including Africa. And, and this was particularly in, in Portuguese occupied areas, so Angola and Mozambique, but also in South Africa, the Dutch and then the Afrikaners imported cannabis and grew cannabis to a trade for land and livestock and labor, um, you know, starting in the 1600s. So one, two different ways. Again, it's a global plant and so yeah. there's you know, lots of uh, connections. In part two of, of your book, uh, which you call uh, evidence. It's simple, effective. I love it. Uh, you also talk about how it becomes a convenient crop and the ways in which uh, it's established as a crop. And oh, can you unpack that for us a bit? 
Sure. So, you know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, smoking was invented in Africa. It was also invented in the Americas, right? Two different plants at least were involved in the Americas, it was principally tobacco. In Africa, it was invented before cannabis arrived. Um, we don't know exactly what people smoked, but Detura, um, which is called Jimson weed in the, in the Western U.S., as you know, different names around the world, they probably smoked that. Um, there's some other plants that were candidates as well. Um, as a drug, supposedly Detura has similar effects to cannabis, but it's really highly toxic. Um, so if you use too much of it, it can kill you. It can cause permanent um, injury to you. Um, and so when t when cannabis showed up, people were already smoking, and somebody figured out how to put it in a pipe. And and smoking fundamentally transforms cannabis how it acts pharmacologically. Right? It was eaten orally, um, you know, as a, a beverage or or as, as solid food in South Asia. It's slowly metabolized that way. It's metabolized through different pathways. It's really difficult to, to manage dosage and whatnot. With smoking, you can use a very you know, a specific amount and get a very specific dosage. The impact is almost immediate. And so you, you, people can dose themselves. So it was really convenient in that respect to, to take it into these smoking ethnobotanies. And as a plant, cannabis grows in in a really wide range of ecological conditions and, it, and so it can kind of take care of itself and if you're growing it to harvest flowers right the you know ganja in current um, terminology you, you, if you don't fertilize it the plant really prioritizes floral development because that's how it reproduces and so people can plant it and give it very little attention and they'd still get plenty of, of smokable drug out of it um, and so it really traveled that way because it was an easy crop. You could plant it in out-of-the-way locations and marginal land. It didn't compete with food crops um, significantly. And um, you know, so it was convenient in that respect. Smoking was convenient too. People could carry pipes and pipe bowls very easily. And, and so it was an easy thing to travel with. You talk about how it's established and it becomes a convenient crop, and then uh, you you sort of move into how societies in Africa uh, were transformed or or overturned a little bit. And I, I'd just be curious if uh, you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, and so you know, cannabis, um, like you know, virtually all plants, was taken up into the global changes that happened since 1500, right? We're talking about, in Africa particularly, we're talking about you know, chattel slavery and slave trading. We're talking about colonialism and colonialism. We're talking about capitalism. And, you know, again, you could look at other plants and understand their rules. For cannabis in particular, it was something that was important in a couple of cases, you know, that are really well documented in terms of how how it contributed to and participated in these kind of social upheavals that were driven by slaving, by colonialism, by capitalism. You know, so the first one that I'll, I'll just mention here is South Africa. Um, you know, I talked about the Dutch and the Afrikaners. They found that by trading drugs, right, cannabis, but also, and more importantly, tobacco and distilled alcohol, they could acquire land, they could acquire livestock, they could acquire labor, they could get rid of people and they could expand their settlements, right? So it was really important in settler colonialism. The people that were dispossessed, um, and this is very well documented, that, that substance use really increased in those areas. And a lot of people, you know, in, in social societies really crumbled because of really, uh, you know, uh, high rates of, of drug use. Um, again, 
you know, alcohol and tobacco were more important, but cannabis was part of it as well. And so cannabis really directly helped settler colonialism in South Africa. Um, in Central Africa, which is is more of my focus, right? Um, cannabis became integral to slave trading. And there's really you know, a really well documented literature on this in, you know, primary literature from the the mid 1800s and early 1800s that that slavers, right, the people who were holding captives, they gave cannabis, they gave marijuana to their captives because they felt like it helped maintain the the condition of the slave. So this is this really meager way of trying to manage slave health. We also know that slaves appreciated it as well, right? And there are stories of people, um, you know, the only uh, account we have of a slave holding seeds in Africa is of a cannabis seed because this this person, you know, wanted to plant it. The slave, um, you know, uh, 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 coffles, the groups of slaves that were brought to the coast, in many cases, they were made to carry commercial sli- shipments of cannabis that the slavers would use and 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 sell and, and whatnot. So it participated directly in that. That's what, you know, ultimately brought it across the Atlantic. And then, you know, the, the last case that I'll mention in also in Central Africa, it's this group called the Benariambo, which is one of the only African ap- episodes that appears in, in popular media on cannabis. Um, and the, the general story there is that, you know, these people who were just fighting and warring and eating each other and all these horrible stereotypes, they learned about cannabis and then they therefore became friends and, and everything was hunky-dory after that, right? The message is that, look, cannabis might be good for our society as well. But if you go back and again, you look at the primary literature, it, it, that's that's not what was happening. This was a place where um, you know, capital, uh, you know, capitalist expansion essentially was going on. There was um, really rampant uh, uh, arms trading, rifles for ivory, for rubber, for slaves, and in you know part of the way that that this uh, you know this trade expanded, the, the gun trade expanded was you know sales representatives offering you know a, a pipe full of weed is you know is what we would say nowadays. To encourage people to like become friends and become buddies and and start trading like that. And so the Benariamba was this movement where basically these um, people overturned their society. They chased out all the old guard, um, and they associated that their success in doing that with cannabis, right? Um, because the trade representative brought them the guns that enabled them to overthrow society, gave them cannabis, and that's you know how they became friends, right? And um, and so this, again, this is something that, you know, you can see in historical cases um, like um, the Heart of Darkness, right? Um, King Leopold's Ghost. Um, if you look at the primary documents associated with that, those atrocities were accompanied by cannabis and tobacco and alcohol, but um, don't recognize that. And it's still the case. There's still you know, war makers in Central Africa and elsewhere that use cannabis to do their thing. Um, and we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, the the contemporary relevance. Yeah. You've talked a lot about um, some of the primary documents. And I just wonder if you could just say a, a bit about some of the research uh, trips that you've taken or uh, some of the experiences you've had abroad in, in writing the book. I'm I'm sometimes pretty embarrassed to say this that this is based the book is based 
you know, almost entire land published literature, historical literature, right? Um, I spent time in archives in Portugal because there was an important um, trade in cannabis in the late 1800s. This is where a lot of the, the slave trading documents were and looked through that. And there's just not much in archives that I've found. If you go to the published documents, though, from the time period, there's a lot, a lot of administrators that were writing about this. There's a lot of, you know, colonial travelers and stuff that were writing about this. And, you know, I found that really the, the digital repositories that are online are incredible sources in general. But in the case of cannabis, they just haven't, you know, the primary published literature hasn't been um, used. And so most of the research is on, you know, published literature. A lot of it you can get through, you know, places, you know, Google Books and Hathi Trust and, and, you know, Per Se is a French one. I spent, you know, time in libraries here in the U.S., um, you know, in, in Madison and Wisconsin, there's a really good um, African collection and Michigan State, there's one and Northwestern, there's one. Um, so, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, library work, but um, the potential for, you know, digital research in the history, in history and the humanities um, it has really profoundly changed. Uh, when I started doing research on history of plants and, you know, about 15 years ago, I mean, it was finding one reference that was really relevant and then literally going on all the books on neighboring shelves of the, in the library, trying to find, you know, you know, archives that are relevant. And I mean, it's incredible what you can do now. So, you know, if people, you know, are listening to this and they're interested in doing it, um, uh oh, your lights went out. Um, you know, I just had to weave my arms. No, I'm gonna probably have to do that. My office lights go off as well. So I, anyway, the the story is there's a lot to be done with, with digital research, and that's a lot of what this book is. And and I again, I've kind of been embarrassed sometimes to say that, but like the resources that are available to us now have not been used in in a number of cases. So going out and doing that is is important. That's really fascinating. And uh, I I got to say, uh, to turn back to the content of the book, when you get into part three, um, you ask us as readers to consider a question. You put a question to us and it's what carried cannabis? So what what does that mean? Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm really looking at the plants, right? What brought again, the plant around the world and every plant has relationships with its dispersal agents. Um, dandelions have a relationship with the wind all right and if you think of it that way you know cannabis has a relationship with birds with rodents that carry it around it also has a relationship with people and people have been the primary dispersal agent for cannabis for you know 10,000 years um and the plant has traveled around the world with people and because it's a human endeavor, it's inevitably political and economic, right? And so thinking about not just the ecological reasons for dispersal, but thinking about the political economic reasons for dispersal, that's really what I want to think of. And so the, you know, the field of political ecology is something that, that you know, people in my discipline geography talk about a lot is looking at, and, you know, human nature interactions as, as simultaneously natural and non-natural and so in that that part of the book it's kind of looking at you know the the expansion of capitalism and of colonialism and and that's really what brought 
cannabis around the world. Um, slavery and the slave trading, that's primarily what brought it across the Atlantic. Um, the expansion of, of cannabis use uh, as a drug in the Americas, that was because of labor movements, because um, you know labor conditions uh, were similar on both sides of the Atlantic where people were you know, really exploited. And, and again, looking at social class rather than race, this wasn't a race-based thing. You had you know, people characterized as white, people characterized as black, people characterized as, as Indian, American Indian or, or South Asian Indian. Um, and they were doing the same thing because they were experiencing these, these conditions where they had to do this hard labor in perpetuity. There was not really prospective release for nearly all the people in these conditions. They were faced with poor nutrition. They were faced with, you know, hazardous disease environments because that's what expanding capitalism and colonialism needed, right? That's what sugar plantations in, in Brazil were doing. That's what, um, you know, uh, trade trade networks in Africa depended upon this. And, and people were using cannabis to kind of get through these 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 conditions um you know and so that's really you know thinking about plant dispersal as an aspect of capitalism of colonialism that's what carried cannabis and you kind of wrap things up in the book uh with this question again rethinking cannabis uh how do we approach cannabis and um so i guess we got to turn to the present yeah. Yeah, we, we I mean we need to think about what's happening right now in the United States and Canada and elsewhere. So I guess what are some of the historical lessons um can we draw from from the book? Yeah. So um there's really two main lessons I think that draw from yeah past um with cannabis. And the first one I, I talk about in terms of just how I organize in the book is thinking about cannabis as a resource, right? As a, a biological resource. Um, and there's a lot of concern about crop biodiversity in general, not just cannabis, uh, how, you know, the genetics of different types and crops, different, you know, what are land races or, or kind of wild or semi-wild forms of plants. All those are really important for helping us kind of, um, capture and regain and build diversity within our food systems and, and make it so that we have a more robust agriculture. You know, if you talk about that in terms of maize or potatoes or rice or whatever, you know, nobody bats an eye. It's something that public institutions need to take care of to protect the public good and, and make sure that, you know, we have this robust agriculture. With cannabis, because of, of prohibition, there is effectively no public participation, no public institutions, I should say, in terms of how we protect and, and conserve and, and use genetic diversity of cannabis. Instead, what's going on is you have these private organizations, which you can also call marijuana seed sellers, right? You can go online and they're based mostly in Amsterdam and you can buy all sorts of, of you know, uh, strains, you know, as the term used, of cannabis. And if you, you know, if anyone has, who's listening has been to a dispensary in any state in the United States or, you know, gone to Colorado or the other states where there's there's recreational marijuana, this, this stuff that's purchased, the marijuana that's purchased there is derived from seeds that are sold in Amsterdam or from Amsterdam. Where do they get their seeds? Well, these organizations, these companies, 
send out bioprospectors to different parts of the world. And they really have focused on Africa because the genetic diversity in plants and of cannabis plants in Africa is appears to be very high. And so, you know, if you know, a, an entertaining thing to do is there's a, a documentary series called Strain Hunters. And you can find this on YouTube and you can see them making expeditions to Morocco, to you know, Democratic Republic of Congo, to Malawi, to Lesotho. And they're going out there and they're collecting these, you know, land races, right? These unimproved strains that are are diverse and different from what there is. They take them back to Amsterdam and they breed them into really high value seeds. And so they're going there and they're getting, you know, literally bags full of seeds for effectively nothing, as far as I can tell from the documentaries. And they're selling the improved seeds for, you know, $15 per seed, right? And so they're making a lot of money off this. They're also the only institutions globally that are kind of preserving cannabis genetic diversity. So they're doing a service, but they're not doing it for free. And they're also not recognizing the intellectual property that exists in Africa because Africans, um, you know, developed and maintain these, these, these diverse seeds, right? And so Durban poison is a strain is, is well known. And the people in Durban and Natal and South Africa have no relation to that. They have no income based on that. Um, there's a number of other ones there. So we really need to think about how colonial the current um, economies, global economies of cannabis are. And something I've worked on since the book is looking at you know, the relationships that are being developed between Canadian companies principally um, since the 2018 legalization in African governments. And, and it's, in my view, very neo-colonial, where the Canadian companies are paying the governments in Africa to allow them to grow medical marijuana is how it's framed. Even as in these countries, it's absolutely illegal for the people living there. Um, you know, people, you know, Rastafarians in Africa are jailed for cannabis possession and use and yet at the same time you know outside companies can go in and buy the rice to do that so you know thinking about fairness thinking about where knowledge and diversity and and these valuable things comes from it is something that you need to think about in terms of, of african history um and then the second kind of main message is thinking about medical marijuana right so i mentioned queen victoria the story of queen victoria um and, you know, and I can deconstruct that, but, you know, the idea that Queen Victoria got high on cannabis is nonsense, right? Um, you know, and I, again, I can deconstruct that, but it's nonsense. What's completely ignored is in the literature, the 19th century medical literature, this is not obscure stuff, but these are mainstream publications that describe specifically how slaves, African slaves, and other Africans use cannabis and use it in particular ways, in particular contexts. And that is, you know, Africans are completely absent in the medical literature in terms of, you know, kind of the historical framing that is present in, in almost all medical literature. Um, if you look at, you know, paper on medical marijuana in the Lancet, the England Journal of Medicine, there's usually like a couple of paragraphs at the beginning saying, here's the history, you know, Queen Victoria, blah, blah, blah. And the Africans are completely absent in that. And yet it's, it's, is very well documented how they used it and why they used it. And so thinking about that aspect of medical marijuana history, one is that it kind of justifies interest in in certain applications nowadays. Treating PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that's what a lot of, of historic people are doing. Palliating um, 
uh, you know, kind of fatal or mortal illnesses, like end of life type of care is what we call about it. I call it nowadays. And just kind of general, you know, helping people get through problem times. Um, there's there's a real history there, and it's it's much better documented than any of the nonsense that circulates around, which is you know patently or, and obviously made to kind of elevate the historic status of cannabis in order to say, hey. It should have historic. It should have higher status now. Um, we need to think about those things because a lot of the history, the African, you know, if you will, medical history is much more about epidemiology. Thinking about the epidemiology of drug use rather than just clinical applications, and that's all the medical literature thinks about now is clinical applications. Well, why is it that people are finding it useful to to use these substances, whether it's cannabis or something else, and Historically, it's because it was an easy to grow crop that was cheap, that was readily available widely. And so people were able to take care of themselves with very few influence. Um, you know, and, and so there's some real, you know, historical justification thinking about, you know, medical applications in those terms, which people have, but not, you know, with any sort of historical grounding to it. So what have you got on the go now? I mean, what's next? Yeah, so uh, the big thing on my mind is that I'm going to become chair of my department in less than a month. So I'm imagining that I'm going to be burdened with administrative stuff. Um, but you know, I'm I'm really you know, as I mentioned, I'm starting to look at kind of current economies, global economies of cannabis because it's you know it's it, there are some real disparities and inequities that that are appearing in terms of who's profiting and who's benefiting and, and the policies that are in place. So kind of looking at that. And, you know, the other thing is is a topic that I had to basically pull out of the book because I was just was getting past my my word limit. You know, hemp, um, looking at, you know, fiber and seed uses of, of cannabis historically, um, you know, there's a, a whole history that hasn't hasn't been told there that again is very well documented but just kind of ignored because of the conditions of prohibition on research and, and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, that's, those are two things I'm, I'm looking at currently. I'm intrigued by, uh, the legalization in Canada and the way, uh, this might be exploitative in certain ways that people are unaware of. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the case, um, well, two cases come to mind. One is, is not Canada. The second one will be, um, in Uganda, there's a company that was formed that I can't tell who owns it, but it was um, authorized to start growing cannabis about five years ago. Um, even if you look at the laws of Uganda and if you look at the enforcement policies and stuff, it's it's absolutely illegal. But it was authorized to do that. There was an Israeli company that started press releases, right? That, you know, and and on the stock exchange, the television stock exchange, they're publishing public information and things like that. And every time they published, you know, they were, they were publishing how they were getting, they gained authorization to grow medical marijuana in Uganda. Every time they published something like that, a Ugandan government official would say, no, 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 no. It's illegal here. (laughs) And, and yet there's pictures of grow facilities in in Uganda, there's, you know, again, it's a publicly traded company where they have oversight and whatnot. So this Israeli company is growing in Uganda and it also bought a distribution network in Germany. And so it's it's this direct transfer of, of wealth, right, um, from Uganda 
to Israel, uh, you know, via Germany. In um, the other example, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, again, there's it, there it, it's absolutely illegal there, and yet there's a couple of Canadian companies who published that they have uh, gained land concessions. Um, one of them has claimed over a hundred thousand acres of of authorization of authorized you know space to grow cannabis in. And the government of DRC, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo, has said nothing about it, right? But you have these companies that they're they're publishing, you know, photos of fields of it, and you know, hundred and some thousand acres of authorized growing land. That's huge, and that's going straight into public publicly traded companies in Canada. So there's shareholders who are making money off of this. There's companies that are making money off of this, and there's people in Democratic Republic of Congo and elsewhere that are in jail or being jailed for, you know, possession of a, a joint or whatever, right? You know, and so there's, you know, and, and again, neocolonialism comes to mind, but just kind of the in- inequities of, you know, power differentials that are produced by wealth. So listeners uh, can't see this, but I'm flipping through your book right now, and it's uh, beautifully illustrated where, I mean, you, you have as I said, right at the top, you have loads of illustrations in here and it's just, it's, it's wonderful to, to just get a, a visual sense of, of what's going on in the book. And so is this something that you were intent on doing from the outset? Well, that kind of goes back to my first book. Like, um, no, the first book, um, it's great. Um, but it was really opportunistic, right? I was doing all this, this global context, um, research and the publisher put out a call for books in the botanical series, which are, again, were focused on specific plants. And, and I said, Hey, I could do that. And, you know, it was my first book and I didn't much about books and stuff at that point. Um, and I agreed to do it and they asked for a hundred illustrations, which I thought, Oh yeah, no problem. And you, you go and, and I don't know if you've done this, but if you go and you try to get permissions to publish stuff, it's a lot of money. And I'm like, Crap, I'm on the hook for 100, you know, 100 pictures. But then I started looking at um, um, historic paper dealers, right? There's on the internet, you can find people who deal in antique paper. And there's a huge amount of really cool illustrations that you can get for for nothing. Uh, you know, I remember finding one that I think I paid 25 cents for that if I was going to get the same exact thing from a library, it would have been dozens of dollars. And so over the years, I've acquired a, a pretty good sized collection of these historic images and um, found them really useful for kind of understanding what was going on. And, and some of them are drug use of people using pipes or whatnot, but a lot of them are just of context so of groups that I have historical descriptions of this group of people using cannabis or whatever. And, um, you know, you can find this is what they look like. This is the, the conditions they were in. And so it was something that, um, you know, when I proposed the book to the publisher, you know, Duke University Press, um, I said, yeah, I'd like to use some um, illustrations. And I proposed, I think, you know, 20 or 25 of them. And as I kept doing research, I kept finding more and more that were really interesting and hadn't been published and whatnot. And they were very, you know, right. well to publish more of them, right? And so, you know, I think that that's good. I think that it's good to kind of get a visual sense of it and, and um, 
you know, because these were real people in the past and, and too often it's just framed as like, oh, you know, cannabis made people see God and this and that. And it's like, well, let's look at the context in which that was happening and, and, and understand those things. Again, you know, thinking about historical epidemiology, not just, you know, clinical applications. Yeah, a lot of, the, of these illustrations are just really attractive and eye, eye-catching. And um, can can listeners actually access some of those images that you've collected over the years? Yeah, I mean, on on my website through the University of New Mexico, I mean, they if they search for the Department of Geography at UNM, they'll find my a link to my site. You know, I have a bunch of them posted there. Um, there is an online uh, encyclopedia. Oh, I can't remember. It's the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of African History. A long title there. I have an article there that has some additional, um, uh, you know, additional illustrations as well. So there's a few of them online, but I haven't posted a lot of them online. Well, I got to just say, it was wonderful talking to you, Chris. Um, it's uh, your book is just really intriguing, and uh, I hope it finds that it's a got a wide audience. Uh, I hope it finds a wide audience. It's it's just, uh, it's wonderful. Um, I hope uh, we can maybe talk in the future again when you've written that next book about hemp. <laughs> well, we'll see. You know, it takes a while to write books, as, as you know. So yeah, for sure. It goes. So thanks again. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. <laughs>